I never told my parents that I had been groomed. I've never told my family. They don't know. You're the first people. This is the first time I've ever mentioned it to anybody but my wife. I'm 50 years old now. The first time I've ever mentioned it to anyone. Now look at your children at whatever age. There's things that have gone on in their lives that you know nothing about. And that if you did know about, you'd be horrified. And a lot of those things happened when they were children. And a lot of those things have had a lasting effect on their personality, on their identity, on their physical, mental health, on their spiritual health. And you might ask yourself, why? Why wouldn't they tell me? Recently, there's a lot of news that can be found on the internet and on broadcast media about grooming. And mostly you'll see it coming from the political right, uh, referring to progressive left policies, maybe school boards and school curriculum and things like that, that that they describe as grooming their children. And so, of course, the epithet would be, you're a groomer. Of course, from the left to the right, it's uh, you're a, you know, a, a Nazi or a racist or, a, you know, the, the, there's these labels that are going back and forth. And for a while there, it seemed like the left towards the right was very, very strong in the labeling. Um, and, and of course, that labeling is designed to to curtail the possibility of a real conversation. But from the right toward the left now, we've got you know, groomers, grooming our children, groomers. And it's not to say that there isn't some of that going on. There surely is. It doesn't take a lot of research to, to see examples of schools that are in fact doing activities that could be, could open up, could increase the chances that children are being groomed. And it's fair to, to question that. But as soon as we start labeling, uh, it curtails the conversation and also blinds us to kind of really what's going on behind the scenes, not only with the children that may be being groomed, but those who are doing the grooming. And so this video is really kind of going to go into a personal story, uh, the story of how I was groomed as a, as a, young, as a young teen. And I'll tell you a little bit about the one who was doing the grooming as well. And we, if we look at the pattern, I believe you will see how this could relate potentially to children you know, or adults you know, and how to maybe protect your children from such circumstances. And also to recognize that the grooming process isn't all negative. There can be positives to it though the negatives may outweigh it, the, the, the children themselves who are being groomed may immediately recognize the positives and not see the negatives until later. When they finally discover the negatives, it may be quite a bit too late um, and very harmful to their psychological stability, their sexual or gender identity, um, their ability to communicate with um, other children of their same gender, as well as to communicate with children of the opposite gender. And maybe even this, of course, could, could extend into adulthood. And so my first, uh, I've got two experiences that I'll share with you. Uh, first is that the grooming isn't just men 
to boys or men to girls, but also women to boys and women to girls. And sometimes it's older children to boys and or girls. Uh, could be could be either gender. I have two memories that I'm two primary memories that I'm going to share. One was when I was about eight years old, maybe nine years old, somewhere in that range. Um, there was a an older there was a thirty odd year old man who was working for my mother that we worked on a ranch, and he was taking care of the horses and things like that, taking care of the taking care of the farm. Uh, and he was a, a very amicable person, very large. He was probably six foot two or six foot three, uh, well over 200 pounds. But he was a, he was a nice guy. Um, he would often speak with me. I was a lonely kid. Um, I had already started having lots of mystical experiences around the age of eight. And I, be, I kind of withdrew into myself, combination of a lot of abuse from my father, physical and psychological um, and neglect uh, within the family. I, I felt like an invisible child. There was so much trouble between um, my siblings and my parents in their developmental process that I just wanted to not cause any problems. So I was invisible. I'm quiet, just very quiet. I spent most of my time alone due to the kind of visionary states I was going into. And um, I couldn't, I didn't feel I could relate to other kids. I didn't want to share this information. It kind of distanced me, distant, distanced me from many of the kids that I might have otherwise been uh, more open with, and including my best friend at the time. And uh, there started to be a sort of a divide between us. I, I was going internal and quite quiet, and I felt socially awkward for fear that I would say something that would would. Uh, would reveal that maybe I was going crazy. You know, I didn't want, I didn't think anybody would understand. Um, and the, the, my best friend at the time, we grew up since I was four. We were just like, like the, imagine the, the brother or sister that you always wish you had. That was, that was my friend, Matthew. And for some, you know, about that time, we really just started kind of drifting apart. He got more and more into sports. He had a lot of friends at school that were, uh, that were, you know, athletic types and, and that sort of thing. And I certainly wasn't that. And when I would try and visit my friend Matthew at school, they, those kids would bully me. Uh, and, and Matthew would never say anything about it. And so I started to feel a little bit of distrust. Then, so I was spending more and more time alone. And this older, this man, who was in his 30s, I was probably mid 30s, um, you know, kind of befriended me. He worked on the ranch. And uh, so we were around each other every day, befriended me. And then he was probably working there for, you know, a, a year or so, I would guess. And my brother had accused him of sexually molesting him. I did not know this, but he accused my, uh, of attempting to select sec, uh, to sexually molest him. I did not know this. This was something he shared with my parents and my parents did not believe him. Uh, my brother was a, a habitual liar and uh, he would steal and do lots of things. And so my parents didn't believe him. The, the worker was a good worker, never seemed to indicate any types of problems. And so they didn't believe, didn't believe my brother. I did not know about this. My parents would, uh, would go to what's called the Del Mar fairs. Uh, we lived in San Diego and there's a, a town called Del Mar and there was a horse fair that, that would take 
there was a horse event that would take place there every year during the fair. And so they would be gone for several weeks during the span of the, the competition. Uh, they would bring my sister, those two, my parents and my sister uh, would go. And then one of the workers on the ranch would go with them and the other, the man stayed behind and to continue to work the ranch. And then my grandmother would come and stay with me. And she was, a, she was kind of a, a hermit. She would just stay in the house and read uh, romance novels and pretty much didn't pay any attention to us. So we pretty much did whatever we want. And she'd just give us sugar and candies. And we, we just ate terribly during that time whenever my parents were away. And it was, it was really just a free-for-all. Well, one afternoon, this man uh, was spending quite a bit of time. We were chatting and he says, oh, you know, maybe I'll, I'll stay over tonight. And we had a, we had a two level house. The bottom level was kind of a garage and then another room was a game room. And the game room had a couch that was a pullout bed. And he says, oh, let's have a sleepover tonight. And he was speaking to me as, almost as if he was a child. You know, let's, let's, we can play pool and ping pong and, and chat and things like that. And I'm thinking, oh, that sounds fun. Just an eight year old kid. I did, didn't know anything. I didn't know about child molestation. I didn't know the danger. He never touched me in any weird ways or indicated any, anything like that. And so my grandmother uh, seemed fine with it, uh, which as an adult now, I'm quite astonished that uh, any adult would, would think that that was all right, that, uh, that an eight-year-old child would sleep in the same bed with a 35-year-old man um, that is not their, your father. Even, even if it's your father, it's kind of weird at the time, by the time you're eight. I can kind of imagine it when you're three or four and you're, you know, you had a bad dream, you want to crawl into bed with your parents. But other than that, it's, that's odd. Uh, but I was, I thought he was a friend. And so, okay, that's great. Um, so we, you know, we we're talking, playing pool or ping pong or whatever. And he's, he says, I'm getting tired. Why don't we lie down? So we get into bed and my brother, I don't know how he found out about it. Maybe he came home from, whatever he was, whatever adventure he had been on during the day, he came home after dark, it was late. And I guess he asked where I was. And uh, my grandmother said that he was, that I was downstairs with this worker. Uh, and next thing I know, I mean, I, I wasn't aware that he was even home, but he came charging down and opened the door and saw us in the bed together. And he just started yelling, you know, cursing you mother and, you know, effing, child molester and it just he just went crazy on the get up out of this house and um the guy ended up leaving thankfully he didn't he didn't argue with my brother he i think he was quite concerned uh that my grandmother would hear him um and hear what my brother was saying so he was just trying to get out of there before my grandmother kind of woke up to the danger of what was going on and so he left and then when my parents came home my brother told them what had happened. My parents asked me and I said, and I told them what had happened. But I still believe that the man had no ill intent. He just wanted to be a friend and we, we, we weren't doing anything and nothing had started yet. But now as an adult, I am absolutely certain that had a, had it, had a little bit more time spent with him in that bed that night. Um, and it would have been rape and it would have been devastating for me. And so this was the one time in my life where I felt like my brother really had my back. And, I, and it's probably because it had almost happened to him and the parents hadn't listened to him. 
And so there was a big trust rift between, of course, my parents and my brother after that. Um, there was before them, but it just it just got worse. And so therefore the behavior issues got worse and I became ever more invisible. That was the first potential danger. He had been kind of grooming me to be a friend, you know, uh, I, I, you know, he had someone that would listen to me, someone that would share their ideas with me, someone that made me feel comfortable with myself, but someone that was way out of my age range, right? And that's dangerous. It's not to say that any adult who might, you know, be friendly with your children would be grooming them, but it's very possible that they, they could be. And it's important to be aware of that and, and also be aware that they may not show any indications of sexual interest or intent prior to the actual event that ends up in rape. Now, I was very fortunate that that did not end up in rape, but that's clearly not the majority of cases. Uh, had my brother not come home at the time he had, had he decided to stay over at a friend's house, which was <laughs> common when my mother was, when my grandmother was staying, um, I think that that would have turned into a rape situation. And I don't know where it would have gone from there. Mm -hmm. So, so that's where, that was my first experience. The next three years for me were kind of a blank. I can remember some aspects of it, but, but my home life, I really don't remember uh, from age eight and a half or so until really almost about 12. So three and a half, four years. I can remember going to school. I can remember kind of who I was hanging out with and it wasn't that best friend. Uh, we had we had kind of stopped really being close. And I, I lost trust for him because I was being bullied at school by a, a much larger boy who, had, who was quite violent and aggressive. Uh, and he would look for weakness and I, I certainly, demonstrated weakness and so he would bully me and uh, the first time I saw him was in the third grade so I was probably seven eight years old about that time and we had a teacher named Mrs. Center and she was a very very difficult teacher very very strict but unforgiving and pushy and bossy no one really liked her and this boy had come from the inner city and she, he wouldn't sit down in a seat and she told him to sit down and he, he refused and she started yelling at him and he just came up and punched her in the nose and she started bleeding. And uh, so that was my first interaction and, you know, he could punch. I mean, he had, he almost knocked her off her feet at, at age eight. Uh, and so that was, that was quite a surprise for me. So I was terrified of him and just as was pretty much any other kid in the school. <laughs> You either were his friend or you were running from him. And, uh, and he wouldn't respect you if you weren't good at sports or you weren't pretty tough or cool. Uh, I was not good at sports. I wasn't tough, nor was I cool. Uh, so he, he would take advantage. Well, my best friend or former best friend invited him to stay over at night for the weekend. And so they would come. We were in the same neighborhood, of course, and this boy basically bullied me the whole weekend and my best friend never said a word about it didn't come on, on my side didn't say hey stop that that's not cool or nothing didn't say a word even after the boy had left my quote-unquote friend never apologized for it never acknowledged the fact that he did not have my back and I realized this person who used to be like a brother to me somehow has just thrown me out that uh, he does he didn't consider me 
He certainly that's not a friend, right? That's not a friend. No, he may have been afraid of this boy, but if you're afraid of him, why are you inviting him over to your house? Right. Or why wouldn't you say it later? Hey, look, I'm sorry I didn't have your back. I'm really scared of him too. Um, you know, that's that's all that's possibility, but it didn't happen. The the apology or the conversation afterwards didn't happen. I just realized this isn't my friend. I don't think I even realized it. I, I guess I just thought that I was not of it wasn't a conscious choice on my part. I just realized that I guess I think I thought I wasn't good enough for him would have been the interpretation I had at the time. Not that he didn't have my back, but that I wasn't good enough for him. So I had such a low standard of friendship. I didn't realize that, you know, your friend is actually someone that you can rely on that will have your back and you will have theirs when times are tough. Um, that you can talk to them and they can talk to you and you can be honest with each other. To me, that's, that's a friend of now. At the time, I think I just thought, you know, almost like he's, he's my former friend is just like socially above me now. And we're, you know, I'm not good enough for him. It's kind of how I interpret it. And that might've been, you know, the, the feeling within him at the time, who knows? I don't know. We never had a chance, chance to discuss it. But so we separated and the time that I used to spend with him after school, I basically spent alone. And I honestly cannot recall what I did with those days for three and a half years because I didn't really get another friend. Oh, yes, actually, I do now. Um, I spent time with a friend with a, with another boy who lived in a neighborhood away. Um, to be honest, he's not someone I, I would ever really. It was we were just spending time together, kind of killing time. I was not someone that I could, I could ever confide in. And uh, so the first friend betrayed me and that friend later. Uh, by the time I got into junior high school, also betrayed me um, and started picking on me. So about the age of 12 or so, I started, um, I got a computer and an older boy who he's about five years my senior. It's a boy I mentioned in the book, The Unbound Soul, named Tim. And Tim had his own computer company. He graduated from high school when he was 16, uh, started his own computer software company. And uh, I was interested in computers. My father got a computer for me when I was 12 uh, for Christmas. And I had uh, told Tim uh, that I got the computer and got some games and he, he seemed interested in gaming. So he would come over and we'd play games together. And it always treated me really well. Um, really, I mean, he wasn't picking on me in any case. I, I, I more or less, I don't think he really treated me with respect. He treated me he, he didn't harm me. <laughs> we spent time together. He didn't harm me. And I learned a lot from him. He would, he was very well read, very well educated. And he would talk about politics. He would talk about sciences. He would talk about all kinds of things, things that were of interest to him. And then I was kind of a sponge and just, just uh, absorbed it. And we'd play ping pong and pool. And, and this relationship went on until I was about 16. And we pretty much hang out every day after school. He'd come over to my place or I'd go up to his place. Later, he got a computer uh, that could uh, not just for business purposes, but could play video games. And he would invite me up and we'd sleep overnight, Friday night to Saturday. And uh, he'd, he'd read three books that night and I'd play video games on his computer until my eyes fell up. Uh, but slowly... But surely he started to groom me. He asked me, you know, when I was probably about 12, if I had ever masturbated and I had not, I didn't even know what it was. And I thought it was gross. And, uh, but, you know, 
the next week or so we'd see each other a number of days. He wouldn't mention it for a while, but then maybe like the next week he'd mention it again. No, I think you'd enjoy it. You try it. You know, it's very natural and everybody does it. Um, and this just sort of continued on and on and on until maybe about a half a year later, essentially I, he was the only one I could talk to the only one that I trusted um, the only one that would talk to me or spend time with me. And I guess I kind of felt like I needed to participate in this or I would lose a friend because I'd already lost several friends. Uh, I didn't participate in sports with my other friend and then he ended up betraying me and I didn't participate in the music event type things of interest that the, the second friend I had that lived in the other neighborhood um, had and he ended up betraying and abusing me. Um, and so I guess I kind of thought like not consciously, but at, like at a feeling level or a subconscious level, if I don't participate, I'll lose this friend too. So I ended up masturbating with him, but this was pre-puberty. I couldn't orgasm or anything like that. I can't say that I particularly even enjoyed it at that point. Um, but that started off a process of, of an escalation of sexuality between us that I did stop. There was a, there was a, a level of it that I simply couldn't go beyond. And that remained the case until I was 16 and he moved away. So basically from about 12 to 16, um, I was, I was being groomed to go ever deeper into um, sexual exploration and behavior that uh, was not appropriate. So by the time I'm 16, he's 21. By the time I'm 13, he's 18. So it was a big maturity difference. But I, it, I thought of him as a friend. And I didn't realize this was grooming. I didn't think of it in that way. What I was most afraid of is that, you know, my, my father would find out. Because my father was really, a, you know, he was, a, he was a horse, a farrier, a horseshoer. He was a man's man. And he spoke violently, aggressively against uh, any kind of non-standard sexual relationships like gays were repulsive to him, that sort of thing. And I remember a circumstance when I was, when we were younger, my brother was teasing my sister for wearing a training bra. And so my father decided, told my brother, grabbed my brother and took off his shirt and put the bra on my brother and made him wear it for like an hour. Called him many words that were very, very uh, abusive. And my brother was screaming, crying, screaming. It was just like going insane. It was very, very abusive. And I remembered that circumstance. And I just thought if, if my father found out that Tim had, had been doing this sorts of things with me, my father might kill him. And I thought of Tim as my friend. So of course I never said anything. I never gave any indication that there's anything that was inappropriate going on. And that's not to mention the extreme fear that I had of my father's judgment against me, the way he treated whom he saw as gay. Uh, I did not want to have my father reject me in that way. And of course, his harsh judgment prevented me from the possibility of ever speaking to him about what was really going on. I don't know if he had been more compassionate or understanding 
or less judgment, less judgmental that I would have confided in him what's going on. But I, what I do think is that, that had my parents been more understanding and open and approachable and less judgmental, I may not have felt so alone such that I would have lost friends and felt so socially awkward and been in a, and been in the circumstance where I was ripe for the picking. About the time I was 16, Tim had moved away and I didn't have a car at the time, so I couldn't see him very often. Uh, at some point he came down to visit, if I recall. I don't remember the circumstances in detail, but what I do remember is him telling me about a 13 year old boy who lived uh, in his neighborhood whom he had struck up a relationship with. Now, mind you, he was, Tim was 21 at the time um, and that they were having sexual relations uh, to some degree or another. I, if I recall, he told me some details, but I don't remember what they are at this point. And he seemed to think that there was nothing wrong with that. And that struck me as being a little bit, that struck me as being over the line, but it never occurred to me that he essentially done the same thing with me. And it's important to recognize that our children aren't necessarily putting two and two together in the way that, uh, that you would, as an adult, they're, they're not mature enough to see the big picture. And may, maybe they would accept things to happen to them that they wouldn't be okay with if they knew it was happening to their best friend or someone that they cared about. It's because they don't care about themselves that much. They're, they're lost. I was a lost child. I mean, just, I was desperate for attention. And this type of grooming is what's happening to the children who are desperate for attention, who feel invisible. We feel invisible because maybe our parents are not, have not been mentoring us, have been essentially ignoring us, um, have not really been raising us or guiding us, or have been overly abusive and not really seeing us as we are trying to make us into what they want us to be. If we have, if we have children who are in such circumstances, we've raised the children so that they, in such a way that they feel alone, that they feel out like outcasts, they're in big danger. And it's not just the fault of the groomers. The people that, they're not really groomers, the people that would be inclined to groom. I'm not sure that, my friend Tim even thought of himself as a pedophile. I don't think he thought of himself as a groomer. And I don't know as he realized the damage that he was causing to me because I became so much more awkward around other boys at that time who were not knowledgeable of our circumstance. Uh, and that made me socially unacceptable, I think. The awkwardness makes other people feel awkward. And so there was therefore was more of an outcast. I remember I, you know, kind of go from group to group to group and none of the groups wanted me around. So I was like, just, I just felt alone. It's a, it's a very challenging circumstance, but even more so, I became even more so awkward around girls because I, I thought, you know, I wasn't sure if I was gay or, um, or what I, I, I had a natural, I mean, I was interested in girls when I was like three, I remember I had a girlfriend and we'd go up and kiss and stuff like that. And again, you know, at age four, a different one. And again, at age five and age six, I was very, uh, very much, very interested in girls. I, uh, when I was a young, very young boy and I always was. And I don't know why I was, I just was. And I, re I can remember being in kindergarten and watching my teacher's she had really sexy ankles, feet, and legs, and uh, she would wear high heel 
shoes and stockings. And I, I just couldn't take my eyes off for legs. I was just in kindergarten. I didn't know that I was, you know, <laughs> being rude or anything like it. Too innocent at that point to, to, to have the social rules and to understand the social rules and to be able to control your eyes and all of that. But that's where I started off. And now in middle school, I'm completely confused, completely awkward. Um, in high school, same thing. I couldn't get a date to save my life because I was so awkward. It was very, very challenging. It was about the time I was 16 or so that Tim had moved away. But then, I don't know, a few months later, six months later, so he moved to another state. So there was, he was no longer around. I couldn't even visit him on the weekends or anything. And I had no other friends. So I was very, very alone again. And I was in a very dark place. I joined the school drama club. And we were assigned a skit to, uh, we were to recite any passage we wanted from a book of our choosing. And uh, I had just begun my reading journey. It was something that uh, I'll talk a little bit more here in a minute, but I chose a book by Richard Bachman. It's a Stephen King book. It's a, he wrote under a pseudonym and the book was called Rage. And it's about a boy who goes to school and shoots up the school, something that's become uh, quite common these days, but was much more rare back then. The book was written in the late seventies, if I recall. But in the book, the main character talks about the theory that people who kill themselves are insane. And he says, if, if suicidal people were insane, why is it that they scream all the way down you know, when they jump off a building? Something like that, I'm paraphrasing from memory. I haven't read the book in you know, 30 years, more than 30 years. But that's the passage that I, that I read. And when I, I, apparently I did a pretty good job. It was very believable probably because I, you know, <laughs> there was some real feeling behind it. And when I finished, the entire theater was dead silent. And so I, I came down from the stage and, and sat down, but no one would look at me. No one seemed to really want to talk to me. It was very, whenever I interacted with somebody, other students, it was very awkward. Even the teacher seemed awkward around me after. And it, that became a mirror for me. I realized that there was maybe something wrong with me. Um, and that was shortly before summer vacation. Summer vacation began. I was alone all summer. And I decided that I realized that I was suicidal and I decided to kill myself. I was taking extreme dangers, like doing dangerous things um, to get attention. And it eventually occurred to me that, uh, for example, went to a party uh, drinking and smoking pot and all that stuff with uh, my brother and some friends in the hills. And there was a, another boy who was out to get me. Um, and we almost got into a fight. Um, I'd already been studying the martial arts at that point. I, I was able to handle him without any difficulty. But then we decided to leave because we didn't want any other problems. Another car started following us. And we were going up a windy mountain road and it was essentially turned into kind of like a drag race going up this windy mountain road. I was driving a truck at the time and I don't remember what they were driving, some small car. Uh, but I what I do remember is that 
that I was in the process of passing a car, trying to get as far away from these people as possible, going up a hill. And we were going on the inside curve. On the right side, there's a cliff going down. On the left side, there's a you know steep you know a cliff going up. And so you couldn't turn in. You know there was no leeway one way or the other on the road. So going around this bend, and I'm passing a car. And just as I'm just almost to the front of the car and about to pull in front of it, a truck comes around the corner, a diesel truck, I'm in a full rig. And what I can remember is seeing the headlights. It was, it was after dark at the time. I can remember seeing the headlights and checking the mirror and seeing the headlights like to the side of my car. And just at the last second, I pulled in front and they went past another the diesel truck's horn was blaring and had I, I mean, I missed them by a fraction of a second, both vehicles. Had I been just a hair bit slower, the vehicle just couldn't quite accelerate just quite enough that diesel would have hit us, knocked us into the other car and not, we would have all gone off the cliff and we would have all died. There were three people in the vehicle with me, four people in the vehicle behind me that I know of, plus whoever was in the truck. So there would have been, you know, seven, eight people that would have died in that instant and that memory came back to me when i was in my room alone and i realized uh, you know i i didn't i thought i had no value i i thought i didn't deserve to live um the i couldn't imagine the future getting any better for me i was a i was in my estimation a loser a wannabe um i would say whatever other people wanted me to say so you know, I had, I had no voice, I had no talents, no abilities, nothing to look forward to, I had no job skills of any sort. Um, and so to me, the idea of, of living another day was just like willful torture. It was actually a very, we tend to think that suicidal people are insane, but at least from my experience, it was very rational. It was like hyper-rational. Um, it wasn't insanity in the way that we normally think of it, either that or insanity oftentimes comes from our logical, rational mind, like where we're out of touch with, we're out of touch with a larger contextual awareness. We're sort of out of touch with our soul, so to speak. Um, and when that happens, that, that's, that's a dangerous place to be. Now, clearly I'm still here and I didn't commit suicide. That's another story for another time. But the key point is, the state that I was in led me into many, many dangerous circumstances. So we've got the grooming going, we've got the drugs, the alcohol, the, um, you know, hanging out with a crew that, uh, that were, you know, they were stealing, growing marijuana illegally, you know, drug dealing at that time. Um, it, my state of mind put me in a lot of dangerous circumstances and almost got us killed, clearly. The key point I want to stress here is that it wasn't all bad. It wasn't all bad. I was functionally illiterate. And that older boy, or we could say a man, really, he was 18 about the time we were interacting sexually, he effectively taught me to read. I would not have become an author. I've written six books. 
since then, but he effectively got me interested in reading. He didn't teach it to me, but he got me interested. He used to take me uh, to the bookstore every Friday night, if I recall, and he would buy a bunch of books to watch that, to read that night. You know, I would stay over at his place. Um, and then each time he was there, he was like, hey, you know, why don't you get this book? This is a great book. You'll, you'll enjoy this about this. And he'd start to tell me the stories and kind of get me interested in the possibility of reading. He never said, are you, are you illiterate? He never indicated that he knew I was illiterate. I'm sure he did. Um, and therefore, I never felt defensive about it around him. But, I'm, but he did get me interested in the stories. And eventually, a few years later, I don't know, about the time I was 16 or so, um, I started to take interest. And I asked him if I could borrow a couple of his books. And that's where I began. And eventually I ended up graduating from high school early at age 17 by taking a test at California High School Proficiency Examination so that I could then go on to college early and do the things I wanted to do. I wanted to get out of high school desperately. Um, and so that's, so the reality is the children who are being groomed are likely gaining some benefit from it. It's not just a negative circumstance, but that doesn't mean that what they gain out of it is worth the grooming. In my case, it worked out because he never physically abused me. He never took it beyond what I said was that I, that I would be willing to do with him. But that's not the majority of cases. Right? That's not the majority of cases. It's very possible that you may have an abusive situation going on that's forced or violent. And so I was in a lot of ways lucky. And in the long run, in the long run, I believe I benefited from it because it actually helped my awakening process to me to realize what sexuality, what gender is about, what identity is about, what, what is it that creates confidence, what is it that creates the social outcast syndrome, what is it that opens up a child to be vulnerable to circumstances like grooming. Many of the other kids in my neighborhood really did not like Tim. They avoided him. He was very intelligent, but also extremely arrogant. And maybe they felt something was odd about him. I don't know. I was pretty well blind about that sort of thing when I was a child. I was too innocent, too gullible. And maybe they weren't so gullible. So right now, and we have a situation where maybe schools are, are speaking about sexuality and gender identity in elementary school. It's too young, too young. You know, the kids at that age still believe too much in fantasy. You know, they, too many of them still believe in Santa Claus. Too many of them are too gullible. They're at a, they're pre-puberty. They, they, they don't have the means to make long-term decisions. And to open them up to this kind of information could certainly be very, very confusing. Consider the time, if you're a, a man, uh, when you went through puberty and your nipples got painful. This is uh, boys and girls go through this. And at the time I thought maybe I was, you know, maybe I was actually a girl inside. I had that feeling. Uh, of course, that's, that wasn't the reality, but had the narrative been around at that time that you, that there, you could, you could be a girl in a boy's body or boys in a girl's body, maybe I would have gone that route and life would have been much, much more difficult than it is now. So it's just, the key point here is that 
identity is very, very tenuous when children are young, they're developing their identity. And a, a lot of times it's possible to develop what I would say is an unhealthy or an unstable identity during that growth period that isn't healthy for your long-term life. If, you're, if you have a child that is an outcast, you may not even be paying attention enough to notice it. You might not even be noticing it. But what they need to learn is how to socialize. And if they haven't learned that from you, it might mean that you've not learned how to socialize. It might mean that you're trying to make them into what you want them to be. You're not really listening to them or you're not challenging them. You're not mentoring them. You are not going to be able to stop. We can't prevent the existence of a person who might groom our children or someone who might rape them, someone who uh, might be attracted to children. They're out there. And they may be grooming your child if your child doesn't feel like they belong, if they don't feel like they're important. And just giving them video games and having them watch TV won't give them a sense of purpose or importance in their life. They need to find something constructive to spend their time doing. And they may need to have friends and they may need to learn to socialize to have friends, which may mean you need to learn to socialize and to socialize your children. And they may need to learn uh, that, that discipline is a healthy thing if done in the right way. They may need to know that we actually love them enough to protect them, enough that we see them enough that we would hear them, enough to say no when they have ideas that are unhealthy. That's the best defense you have. The best defense your children have is their relationship with you. If both parents are working and the children are going to daycare or their latchkey child, dangerous. If they're highly introverted, dangerous. If they're socially awkward, Dangerous. Those are all red signs. You know, instead of looking out there for the quote unquote pedophiles and the quote unquote groomers, look to see the circumstance of your child. Do they feel like they belong? Do they feel like they're important? Do they have real friends who will look out for them? Are you truly looking out for them? Are you helping them to become and develop into the fullness of a courageous, insightful, aware human being that understands there are dangers out there and knows how to navigate them. That's the key. Now let's discuss the mentality, the spiritual state of those who might become or who might be tended to groom, who might be, who might have a tendency to molest, who might have a tendency to, to rape, who might have a tendency to encourage the uh, distortion of identity of our children, of the gender of our children, of the sexuality of our children. Let's explore their circumstance. Isn't it true that the vast majority of them had been groomed when they were young? It's certainly the case with, with Tim. He discussed 
how he had been introduced to masturbation by an older boy. And that led one step to another to a distortion of his sexuality. And then of course he repeated the pattern with me. I broke the pattern. But if we were to research those who have raped, we will find that many of them, most of them have been raped when they were young. Those who molest had been molested. So if we were gonna be very honest and remove the personal identity from the story, your child who may be being groomed, who may be being molested, who may have been or may be raped at some point, they may become the groomer. They may become the molester. They may become the person who we would call a rapist. They may become inclined towards grooming. They may be inclined towards molesting. They may be inclined towards raping. They may be inclined to distort our children's sense of gender and sexuality, just as happened with them. And so by not protecting our children, by making them strong, capable, courageous, love, respect, acceptance, appreciation, and trust for themselves and their family, by ourselves not having love, respect, acceptance, and appreciation, and trust for our mind and body, our way of life, a communion, a healthy communion between the mind and the body, it amplifies the chances that they will be taken advantage of, that our children will be taken advantage of. If you smoke and you tell your children not to smoke, what's the chances they're not going to smoke? Kids don't do well with hypocrisy. If you don't love, respect, accept, and appreciate yourself, if you don't truly trust yourself, and that's not easy, not that many people do. If you're not strongly grounded, if you're not clear within yourself and, and lead your children well and mentor them well, to be the greatest potential of themselves and truly see them as they are, not try to make them into you. If you haven't socialized your children well by the time they're four, such that they can play well with other kids, they can follow rules and they can respect themselves. They can work towards a goal with other kids and you. You're setting them up, you're setting them up to be taken advantage because the predators are out there looking. You know, they're not really predators, but they don't, like, I don't think Tim ever thought of himself as taking advantage of me. I don't think he ever thought of himself as grooming me. I don't think he ever thought of himself as, quote unquote, a pedophile. But by standard definitions, he would fit all those things. If I had a son or a daughter, I wouldn't let him anywhere near them. In retrospect, right? And I don't think he meant wrong. I don't think he thought about it very deeply. I think he was, it's just an urge or compulsion that comes forward. And that's what happened with him. And he thought it was perfectly fine. Maybe he may even have thought it was healthy. Mentor your children. Raise them with your time. Participating with them in activities, include them in challenges. Give them rites of passage. 
show them how to socialize properly. You might not know how to do it yourself, which means you might not need to learn it yourself. Most of the children who have these problems have parents who have similar problems or are just too busy, self-absorbed to spend time with their children, or maybe they're being raised by a single parent, a single mother, ripe. They become ripe for the picking. The statistics on that are very, very clear. Being raised by a single parent is the most dangerous thing you can do to your child. You open them up for all kinds of abuse. A man cannot take the place of a woman in a family. A woman cannot take the place of a man in a family. They're not the same thing. Men and women are not the same. The key point is, in a family relationship, if there's only one parent, we put our children at extreme risk. There are, I, I have seen situations where that has worked out well, but the vast majority of the time it does not for the children. It might work out well for the parent, but it might not work out well for the children. The vast majority of grooming, molesting, raping goes on right in our homes. It happened in my home with me, with your children. It might be happening in your home with the man that you're dating or the woman that you're dating. This isn't just men to children, women to children. I have friends and have family that I know have been molested by women and they were boys at the time, four, five, six-year-old boys at the time. And it distorted their sexuality for sure. Our identities when we're children are very, very malleable. And if the, if the inner mapping of our identity doesn't match our body for whatever reason, oftentimes because of the grooming, because of the molestation, because of the repeated rapes, because of the feeling that they're meaningless, that they're unvaluable, they're going to try and fill that void somehow. And they're going to seek groups of people that might accept them. And the groups of people that might accept them are other people that are lost, people that may have distorted sense of gender identity, who may have a tendency towards drugs, who may have a tendency to molest, to rape, to whatever, who, who, who may have various identity level distortions. I'm not saying that they're bad people. That's a very shallow or childish way of thinking about things, but doesn't mean that they're safe for your children. Doesn't mean that you would want your children around them if you saw the big picture. Sadly, you might never see the big picture because they may never tell you about it. I never told my parents that I had been groomed. I've never told my family. They don't know. You're the first people. This is the first time I've ever mentioned it to anybody but my wife. I'm 50 years old now. The first time I've ever mentioned it to anyone. Now look at your children at whatever age. There's things that have gone on in their lives that you know nothing about. And that if you did know about, you'd be horrified. And a lot of those things happened when they were children. And a lot of those things have had a lasting effect on their personality, on their identity, on their physical, mental health, on their spiritual health. And you might ask yourself, why? Why wouldn't they tell me? And what I can say is there are real reasons why. 
And the question is, do you want to know what those reasons are? Could you hear the stories without judging your children? Could you hear the stories without judging yourself? Could you just hear them honestly? Because the judgment is what prevents people from being honest. All right, as usual, let's begin our meditation. Today we'll work on one step of the warrior's meditation. There are six steps. If you'd like to learn all six steps of the warrior's meditation, you can head over to my website, richardlhate.com, and you can enjoy their 30, 30 sessions that will give you a sense for the warrior's meditation, as well as join the master's course, Warrior's Meditation Masterclass. And there are 16 sample sessions that you can access freely. And uh, I hope you find them enjoyable. Many people do. I've written a book called The Warrior's Meditation. You might find it very, very helpful if you're a reader. you find that on any of your favorite online stores. All right. And with that, let's begin. And close the eyes. Become aware of the breath. Breathe in such a way that your body enjoys it. Breathe in such a way that it invigorates the body. Let all negativity drop away. Forget your name. Forget your to-do list, just breathe. Breathe in a way that's quite relaxing to the body. And with each breath you may enjoy becoming sensitive to the smells in the room that you're in or the space that you're in. A sense of smell will stimulate deeper aspects of the brain, deeper areas of the brain, your instinctual awareness. Be sure you're not slouching. Keep a little bit of straightness in your spine, but not tense, not overly tense, just a little bit of aliveness in the spine. And see if you can keep the shoulders from rounding. You might pull them back and open up the chest a bit as you breathe. Make maximal space for the breathing. You might flare the nostrils a little bit as if you were smelling a rose or any fragrance that you really wanted to pull in that fragrance deeply, you tend to flare, instinctively flare the nostrils a bit. That'll stimulate the deeper brain. All right, thank you so much for spending this time watching this video, contemplating the concepts, enjoying the meditation with me. I'd love to hear your feedback. What are your concerns with your children? What are your concerns with society? Do you feel grooming is a growing issue in our society? Is there a legitimate complaint against it? 
Is it becoming a problem in our schools? Is it all right to have sexually explicit material available to children and to be dis discussing such topics with children who are in preschool or who are in elementary school or junior high school, discussing alternative sexual practices like anal sex and things like that? Is that appropriate in your estimation? And if so, why? And if not, why? Let's have an honest discussion, see if we can throw out the labels and open our hearts and have a true discussion. And if there's any topic you'd like me to address in a future podcast, please, please uh, post it in the comments section. And I may be inclined to do so. Thank you so much. And thank you for the conversation. I'd love to hear from you. Bye-bye.